Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, it's Nathan Eckersley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then. Please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done, now on to the show. I'm Nathan Eckersley and on the show this week we are looking at levelling up and asking if it's still relevant after I visited the 2023 Convention of the North. Plus I'll be looking at Nadine Tahawi's departure as Conservative Party Chairman and asking if you agree with Rishi Sunak's decision to sack him. It's a packed show and I want to hear from you, so let's go. On Wednesday, I was at Manchester Central Convention Centre for the 2023 Convention of the North. This is an annual conference which started in 2018, which brings together the North of England's business, civic and political leaders to debate and discuss ideas to turbocharge the northern economy. More than a thousand delegates went to this high-profile event to hear from politicians, campaigners, policymakers and business leaders from the North of England and beyond. The first convention in 2018 was held in Newcastle, in the midst of Theresa May's Brexit dramas, and was a really important event, setting out a vision for a post-Brexit northern economy, and which really fired the starting pistol for what would later become known as levelling up. The event held the year after in Rotherham, one of the most deprived parts of the North, was attended by the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson, where he began fleshing out the ideas of addressing regional inequalities. Those in attendance drafted a manifesto presented to the government, proposing a variety of policy measures to facilitate northern regeneration. For obvious reasons, the event was not held in 2020 and 2021. However, the 2022 convention in Liverpool was one of the first major post-lockdown conferences, and was the first since Boris Johnson put levelling up at the heart of his administration. Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities Michael Gove was the government's representative at the Merseyside event, held just one week after the long-anticipated levelling up white paper had been published. Gove made the case for cross-party collaboration and suggested a greater role for government in the local economy, stating that levelling up is, quote, a moral, social and economic issue, and that inequality produced by the free market is indefensible. 
This year's conference, held just days after Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced billions of pounds in investments for levelling up projects, seemed very lacklustre given the successes of its predecessors. In large part, the somewhat pessimistic, pessimistic attitude of the attendees stemmed from the publication of the annual State of the North report by IPPR North the night before the convention. It showed that if the north of England was treated as a country, it would rank second from bottom of the OECD rankings for investment, just slightly ahead of Greece. Well, speaking about the report, co-chair of the Convention of the North, Sir Roger Marsh OBE, said this in his address to the conference. It's important to recognise where we are, and reference has been made to the State of the Nation IPPR report of today. If you think of the 38 OECD countries, and because of the ob obvious size of the North, as I've just indicated, and class that as 39, where do we rank in terms of in relative investment? I'm hugely disappointed and annoyed, but again, uh, enthused by the fact that we rank just above Greece when it comes to investment. So there's plenty for us to do. And as has been said by others, Genuinely, we are part of a long-term solution. And candidly, if you look into our history of all the different bits of the North, if you wanted to point to a region that put the great in Great Britain, we're in it. Again, there's an economic solution to it that's a positive, but at the same time deals with a social problem. So I say to the government, and any government of any colour, treat us as part of a solution and not somehow be seen as something of a problem. The first showpiece of the conference was a video from Carsten Schneider, Germany's Minister of State for East Germany and Equivalent Living Conditions. In 1990, following the fall of communism and the Berlin Wall, Germany reunified under, reunified under a new constitution, which enshrined the principle that there would be no inequality between East and West, and ensured legal guarantees to create regional equality. This is what Schneider had to say. Regional structural policy has long been a cornerstone of German politics. The goal of creating equal living conditions everywhere in Germany can even be found in our constitution. There are good reasons for it. If regions are drifting apart, it is bad for everyone, including for the growth regions, vice versa, if a variety of regions flourish, the whole country will prosper. Following the minister's five-minute video and a panel event with metro mayors and policymakers, delegates went off to policy workshops to try and create a manifesto of sorts to present to the government reflecting the North's needs and desires. I went to the Education, Skills and Work workshop to see how levelling up can really benefit young people. The concept was that three policies would be provided and refined by the attendees. I was encouraged to see that this workshop was packed out and standing room only, suggesting that many people from a wide variety of backgrounds and industries want to have a stake in enhancing the life chances and opportunities for young people in this part of the world. The policies presented were as follows. So number one, growing a pipeline that matches supply of and demand for skills underpinning with an accessible provision that is responsive to employer needs enabled by skills devolution. Number two, driving good employment across the north, using good employment charters and anchor institutions to promote good employment. And number three, 
work to strengthen the education system via teacher retention, with a pan-northern pilot on teacher retention through high-quality continuing professional development and other measures. Now, you may have noticed that in a discussion about education and skills with policy ideas to match, there is a key word missing, but fear not, because the ideas were refined by delegates and later presented to the whole convention. Those three ideas were amended to, number one, creating a northern skills campaign with a northern feel to engage local stakeholders. Number two, a new teacher recruitment and retention scheme in schools and further education. And number three, future-proofing the skill system with further devolved powers for local leaders to ensure needed skills are taught. Now, despite those key revisions, that one word is still missing, and that word is student. At no point in the workshop or the policy presentation was the word student mentioned. Rest assured, I did try to make the case. However, in a workshop cut short to just 40 minutes, at least a third of which was taken up introducing the organisers of said workshop, there was not much of an opportunity for discussion, and sadly time, time ran out before I could contribute. Well, the first keynote speech of the day was from Michael Gove, who used the opportunity to announce £30 million in new funding for improvements to social housing in Greater Manchester and the West Midlands, and additional investments for towns in Teesside. This is what the Secretary of State said. Mark Docklands today is an economic success story. One of the most signal success stories we owe to Mrs Thatcher's government. And it is that spirit that animates our levelling up policies. Active government. And that spirit is there most vividly in our plans for new investments. This country has no shortage of growth industries, whether in advanced manufacturing, renewable industries, or the life sciences. And we have no shortage of world-class universities, including here in Manchester. But where we've underperformed is leveraging the success of those industries and research to support growth across the whole country, and particularly in communities in need of regeneration. That is my guiding mission for investment zones, and we will shortly begin the process to identify investment zones in areas that need levelling up. Judging by the reaction on Twitter, Gove's speech was a flop and tone deaf. However, that was not the feeling in the hall, despite what some delegates had posted on social media. The Secretary of State is absolutely right. Government does have a role to play. However, the private sector needs to take the lead. The role of government, just as Margaret Thatcher did in the Docklands, is to create the landscape for investment by, in his words, irrigating the soil for growth. Well, later in the day, Labour's Lisa Nandy, Gove's shadow counterpart, presented her party's vision for devolution and levelling up. This is what she told attendees. So today we're firing the starting gun on the biggest transfer of power out of Whitehall and Westminster in British history with one simple ask. Tell us what you need to create strong local economies and thriving inclusive communities and we will back you. There are a million good jobs on the road to net zero and a global race to get them. Why shouldn't young people in Barnsley and Bolton have the chance to power us through the next century like their parents and grandparents powered us through the last? That's why we've committed to the biggest investment in green energy transition in our history, to underwrite the economic growth plans created by the people who live in those communities and see assets and potential where Whitehall sees only problems, to bring back good, well-paid jobs to places that were once the engine room of Britain. And if you write the plan, 
will support the jobs of the future and hand you the tools to deliver in all places, not just some. Essentially, the Labour Party's plan is to expand devolution all over the country and say to local leaders, write a plan with what you want and you can have it. Nandi went on to say that if a plan is rejected, a Labour government will work with that area to refine the plan with better costings and timeframes, etc., so that it can be approved. This is where the divide lies. Both the Conservatives and Labour agree the need for devolution and for levelling up. However, Gove wants government to create the conditions for private enterprise to flourish, whilst Nandi wants the government to lead on regeneration. The consensus amongst attendees and the Metro Mayors in attendance, all of which were Labour, is the latter approach, which is deeply disheartening. Further discussions along the lines of further devolution and yet more government intervention continued until the conference closed for another year. Overall, it was quite a depressing event. The narrative throughout the day was that government isn't doing enough, so we need central government to give local government more power so we can do more of the same. Despite the message from Sir Roger Marsh at the start of the day, engaging businesses to work with local leaders, similar to Michael Gove's message, the consensus of the Labour mayors and politicians present is that the state must dominate the approach to levelling up, establishing yet another divide between the Conservative government and local Labour leaders. Well, later in the show, we will be looking at Nadim Zahawi's sacking from government on Sunday morning and asking if you agree with Rishi Sunak's decision to remove him as Conservative Party chairman. So I would love to hear from you on that and our main topic today, which is, of course, whether levelling up is still relevant. Please get in touch and let me know your thoughts. You can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, is levelling up still relevant? To vote on that poll, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183538. Email us station at wizardradio.com and all of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.com. We'll be back right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back. Let's hear what you have to say. And our first message today comes from Kelly. Kelly says, The government have been talking about levelling up for what feels like years, and yet there are no actual tangible results or plans for this landmark policy. For now, it's still very vague. The government are going to help poorer parts of the country become not so poor. Isn't that the job of the government anyway? They use phrases like engaging business to work with local politicians and they brainstorm policy ideas without actually implementing anything that is tangible. I guess this is what happens when your landmark policy is plucked out of thin air, without any real definition or clear action, and then you're left to make, make sense of it further down the line. I don't think levelling up is still relevant, Nathan, and I don't think it ever has been relevant, because nobody knows what it actually is. Well, thank you for that message, Kelly, and 
you've actually touched on a really interesting point here, which is what is leveling up? And the only real indication we've had about it is the the publication of a, the, a really important document from last year called the Leveling Up White Paper, which was uh, I, I believe it's a ninety-page document in in which the government sets out its policy proposal. Well, it was actually under Boris Johnson's administration it came out, it, and it was setting out what what his administration saw as leveling up, how it wanted to regenerate these very deprived areas, these areas which had been neglected, forgotten about for many, many years. And I I would encourage men, uh, all of you to uh, go onto the gov.uk and actually have a look at the uh, Leveling Up White Paper because there are some really, really interesting ideas in there. And it's not just things about, you know, put, throwing money here, there and everywhere or uh, saying we're going to build loads of houses here. There were some real uh, meaningful and uh, actually tangible ideas that were presented within this uh, policy document. Things like uh, investing in uh, super high-speed broadband, for example, and uh, bringing better connectivity to more rural areas as well. Uh, there was improvement to local infrastructure. Um, you know, all, all of these things that were re really important ideas. And so it's, it's not just the case that, you know, we uh, we're just going to throw money at these things. There are actual plans in there. So, you know, uh, parts of it included increasing pay, employment and productivity in every area of the UK, uh, increasing domestic public investment in uh, research and development projects outside of London and the South East. And that was something that was picked upon quite a bit at the Convention of the North this week. You know, actually bringing in uh, universities across the country and using them as research hubs for really groundbreaking projects and projects which really can change people's lives. You know, the, the fact that we have such an incredible wealth of talent in the UK, that should not be limited to London and the South East. It should engage our universities. And, you know, there, there are fantastic institutions right across this country. Uh, in addition to that, you know, there's improving life expectancy across the country, improving uh, primary school literacy and numeracy standards, uh, increasing pride in local places, you know, putting more investment into local culture projects, tackling serious neighbourhood crimes. And these are the issues that people care about. And those are the issues that were raised in the levelling up white paper. And so when we try and distill this down into what levelling up is, essentially that's it. But for so long, particularly with Boris Johnson's administration, we just had years of fudged explanations. It, it, it was just such a loose term. It was a slogan just trotted out for the morning media lines that it, people switch off from it. And when you have this flagship policy that doesn't have a definition for so long, for, for years even, actually, because this was being fleshed out when Boris Johnson was running for the, the well, standing for the Conservative Party leadership in 2019. Initial ideas were developing in the end days of Theresa May's administration as well. So it, it, it's not like levelling up is something that just sprung up overnight. This is something that's been planned for a very long time and been developing for a while. But it does need the private sector to engage in it. And so that's why I think Michael Gove is right in what he's saying. You know, actually irrigate the soil of growth, to, to use the words from his speech. Actually have government create the conditions for economic investment. Make it so that huge companies want to invest in the UK. And that, so that that's why I, 
it, it was disheartening just to see at this conference that actually, no, we, we just need the government to do this, that and the other to give local leaders more powers so we can have yet more state intervention in the local economy. That's not the way you do it. That is not the way to level up. You have to engage all sectors, all stakeholders. And fundamentally, that that's why there is still such a, a woolly definition around leveling up. But thank you for that message, Kelly. And we, we do need to engage businesses to work with local politicians. But there does have to be some meeting ground, some middle ground in this. And you know, leveling up really can be revolutionary, just as long as we get a fixed definition of what it is. But thank you. Our next message comes from George, who says, I was actually audibly shocked to hear Lisa Nandy use the term leveling up in that clip you played, Nathan. Leveling up is a conservative coined term that has become a key part of their manifesto and will continue to play a key role in the next election. The fact that Labour are jumping on that policy, they are using that term productively. They are using a term that reminds people of the Conservatives. That suggests to me that levelling up has never been more relevant than it is right now. In the leadership debates, there will be a section about levelling up, where Keir Starmer will likely need to make pledges about how Labour would level up the country in doing so. In doing so, he is actually making the case for a Conservative government without realising it by backing a Tory policy. Well, thank you for that message, George. And you're right, you know, this is a, a conservative slogan. It's, you know, I think it was what one of the uh, ideas of Dominic Cummings, you know, famous for vote leaves, take back control um, slogan during the EU referendum. And it, it's, it's a fascinating term, really, you know, for, for geeks like me who in, enjoy studying political speeches, language, etc. You know, to really analyse that because the just the the concept leveling up yeah you know, forget the local government connotations and everything if you just think about the term leveling up immediately it's it's a sense of boosterism it's it immediately it conjures up an idea of ambition you know of scaling up to think big think differently if you want to use that that uh, steve jobs language uh, you know it immediately it's an optimistic message and you know, for so so much of the early days of Boris Johnson's premiership, he was, uh, you know, up, up against Jeremy Corbyn, and it, there was a, a real ideological battle going on be between those two leaders. But since Keir Starmer's taken over, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a much more consensual uh, 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 style of politics. We're seeing much more agreement between the leaders. It's just that. There is the belief that levelling up needs to be done. Regeneration of the North needs to be done. All sides agree on that. But the approach is, is where where it differs. And so I, I think it's good, actually, that the Labour Party is embracing the, the levelling up idea because you know, the, the term has become well known now. If you repackage it into something else, it just creates yet more confusion and yet another term. As, as Kelly was saying, you know, we, we don't even know what levelling up fully is. But if you throw in a new slogan uh, to say the same thing, all you're doing is adding to that confusion and uncertainty around what the term actually is. And the fact that Lisa Nandy's shadow cabinet title is Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing Communities. Uh, again, it shows that commitment to the, the pledge to level up the, the northern and the rest of the country. And I, I, I mentioned this on last week's show, but, you know, we are in the midst of the, the, well, we are in the early days of the general election campaign. And, you know, no election's been called. We don't know what date it's going to be held. But this is the point at which the next general election is now being fought. This is the time 
when voters are starting to look back over the last few years, start to think critically about what's happened, look at what's being presented and start mulling their options for uh, when the election comes, which we expect to be in May 2024. Leveling up will be the policy area which the Conservative Party is judged on. And there are success stories from levelling up, un undoubtedly, particularly in the West Midlands and Tees side. Yeah, and I know those are uh, Conservative held mayoralties and, you know, the, the central government operated by the Conservative Party will naturally want to favour those areas. But they are proof that levelling up can work, especially in Tees side, you know, a traditionally Labour red wall area that has a Conservative mayor and has had a Conservative mayor since 2018. That was really the first indication of the Red Wall collapsing, to have Ben Houchen there as a Conservative mayor in a very, very Labour area, such as his side is. And we, within that, we've seen the effectively the nationalisation of Teesside Airport that's in the last few years been reopened and is commercially viable, taking international flights everywhere, greater investments into the area, um, and I mean, Blythe Valley as well saw huge investment with the um, uh, the uh, electric car industry, the battery industry with uh, British Vault. Now the the company recently went bust, and you know there the have been subsequent job, job losses from that as a result of the economic climate we find ourselves in. But nonetheless, it's proof that businesses do want to invest in places that previously were neglected if the conditions for growth are there. And so there is so much potential for it, and it can go further. And so that's why I think the Labour Party is right to continue with levelling up, to actually bring it into their own uh, vocabulary, to bring it into their own, shape it in their own vision, so that when that election is officially called and the campaign proper gets underway, then actually there is proper competition and comparison between the two main parties. But thank you for that message, George. And you're right, it is a good point there that Labour is adopting this language. Our next message comes from Mike, who says, As you said, Nathan, there are lots of interesting ideas in the levelling up white paper, but there is not enough in there about actual implementation. I agree that with raising salaries across sectors as a way of levelling up the country, but how are they actually going to implement that? I see levelling up as being a way for the Tories to talk about the things they would have all loved to do. It's a way for them to charm areas that have been in need of investment for decades now, but I do not think they are going far enough. If the Tories were serious about levelling up, then this is a policy that would have consistently been in the headlines for months and months. But it hasn't been. They have let it slip by. So I find it hard to believe, just because there's been a white paper and a conference, that they are actually taking this seriously, when I do not see a lot about actual implementation. Well, thank you for that message, Mike. And you, again, you're, you're right. It's a, the, one of the greatest shames of this parliament, and something that I do find quite saddening, actually, is just what a, what a monumental waste of an 80-seat majority. Uh, you know, for, forget the whether it's Conservative Party Labour for a moment. Just think of a government with a parliamentary majority, whereby they could effectively do whatever they wanted. And look at how it's been squandered. Nothing meaningful has been done since December 2019. Other than passing coronavirus measures and lockdown measures that needed parliamentary approval quickly, and you know they, they used that to pass the, the, those respective pieces of legislation. Again, the, the ethics of that we can discuss another time. But you know to use the majority for that and that only is incredibly depressing. It's incredibly disheartening, and the, with, with leveling up as well. One of the, the things that was mentioned at the conference and 
particularly by the, the Labour politicians there, is they, they don't like how for the various levelling up funds that lo uh, local authorities have to bid for uh, grants and uh, financial approval for certain projects. You know, and uh, Lisa Nandy in particular, uh, during her speech, she referred to it as a Hunger Games style uh, way of uh, bidding for money. But actually, that should be the only way it's done. The, the Labour Party's policy is just to hand money out wherever it's requested. And as long as you provide a plan, give a costing, you can have the money. That's not the way to do it. If you have competition, it means that local areas can actually innovate with each other, actually come up with some really bold, innovative, game-changing plans. And no, no one's saying if your bid's unsuccessful, that's it forever, you can't apply again. The, the current position is, if a local authority has an idea in mind, they put in a bid, it's assessed by an independent panel, and uh, it, it will either be approved or rejected. If it's rejected, you, you try again. It's competition. It's how the market flourishes. And you know, the, in the latest round of funding, uh, there were some projects that were unsuccessful in the previous round, uh, midway through last year, that were approved this time. Uh, the Eden Project, for example, in Morecambe, where Rishi Sunak was fined for not wearing a seatbelt. You know, that the initial set of funding wasn't fully given last time because there were some inconsistencies in the plan. They bid again. They increased the uh, specification of what they wanted to do. They uh, uh, expressed why additional funding would create jobs and investment for the local economy. They got the funding for the Eden Project. That will bring in billions of pounds for that local economy once it's completed. It will be a real game changer for Morecambe and for and sets a precedent for other seaside towns that have been neglected for so long. And so you're right. You know, it's fantastic that there is a white paper. It's great that there are policies there, and the government has used this as a conference and uh, and a way to promote leveling up. But fundamentally, it. It does need more refining. Thank you for that message, Mike. And a reminder that to get involved, you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. All our contact details and our poll can be found on our website at wizardradio.com. We'll be back just after this. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back. Let's take some more of your messages. And our next message comes from Tamara. Who says, Nathan, you said that the next election is going to be fought on the issue of levelling up. But I just have to disagree. Judging from many of your messages, Nathan, for most people, levelling up feels very far away. Even when projects start, they're going to take a long time to actually have an impact. But what we are facing, real issues right now, that make levelling up look small. The next general election is going to be fought on the issue of the cost of living crisis. Can people afford to pay their bills? How many people have become homeless for the first time? A lot of people in this country are facing crises that impact their survival tomorrow. They can't think about economic policy for five years' time. Even if you can pay your bills, your house is going cold for a few hours a day at least to bring the cost of bills down. 
I think it's incredibly out of touch to think people will care about anything other than the cost of living come the next election. Well, thank you for that message, Tamara. And uh, I'm not saying that levelling up is going to be the number one uh, priority at the next election. Of, Of course not, because as you quite rightly point out, the cost of living crisis is incredibly serious. And, you know, levelling up is going to, certainly going to be one of the big issues at the next election, I firmly believe, because it's, it's what Boris Johnson and indeed the Conservative Party staked the, this government on. You know, I, I know Boris Johnson isn't Prime Minister anymore, but nonetheless, the, this, this Conservative Party was elected on his leadership, on essentially his mandate as leader. And in his acceptance speech, he, he made the pledge to do levelling up. He made it the mission of the government. Liz Truss reaffirmed it, as did Rishi Sunak. This Conservative Party is committed to it and is not going to let let the issue slide. It is very much going to be at the heart of the, this government's decision making. But you're you're right. You know the the cost of living is a huge issue, and certainly there does need to be more support uh, for people, particularly the those who are uh, really being adversely affected by the cost of living and you know, household energy bills, etc. And in, in some ways, leveling up can go hand in hand with the cost of living because you know that devolution you know it 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 has its merits it also has its critics but devolution can play a part in this by you know uh making just day-to-day uh experiences and living more more affordable um you know giving local leaders the powers to uh, provide grants or uh, investment to projects uh, where where the money is really really needed and you know if I, i take my own area of Greater Manchester, for example, you know, they've uh, capped bus fares at uh, £2 per journey for an adult or uh, £1 per journey uh, for a child. You know, things like that can make a difference. Um, similarly, um, the the uh, expansion of uh, local transport networks as well makes things uh, much more within reach. Uh, investment for uh, homeless shelters as well, um, you know, get, tackling rough sleeping as well. You know, the, these are issues that devolution can help with and that does go hand in hand with leveling up so you know thank you for that message Tamara and you know you you are right the cost of living is serious and that will be most likely the main issue come the next general election when it's called but you know in in those tv debates in those uh, party political broadcasts on the tv in the newspapers leveling up will definitely play a part in it because it is the the central point of this government's mission and part of the reason why it was elected in the first place. But yes, cost of living certainly will take precedence, I'm, I'm sure. But definitely leveling up, leveling up will be a key part. But thank you, Tamara, for that message. Our next message comes from Sam, who says, The Tories clearly think that leveling up is their vote winner at the next election. As you said, Nathan, but I think that's a mistake. People are going to really need to feel like they've benefited from leveling up to vote based on it which is just unrealistic. I don't think that levelling up is even in the top 10 talking points for most people right now. You have the cost of living crisis, the strikes, the Ukraine war, major issues with the police, the housing crisis. Do I need to continue? Levelling up might be very relevant to the government, but I don't think it's relevant to normal people, also known as voters. And it is yet another way that the government is crucially out of touch with the people they're meant to be serving. Well, thank you for that message, Sam. And yes, you know, as, as I was saying in response to tomorrow's message, cost of living is a 
uh, massive issue, most likely the top for the, the next election. Uh, and again, the other issues you mentioned there, the strike action, the uh, war, war in Ukraine, uh, housing, you know, all the police as well. I mean, it's awful stories coming out about various police forces across the country. But the, these are all things that do get discussed at the elections. You know, the general elections aren't, well, are very, very, very rarely single issue uh, elections. I think the, the only one in recent time really has been uh, 2019, just to break the Brexit stalemate that was created as a result of uh, Theresa May's election. You know, so, you know, it, it's not going to be a single issue solely on levelling up, but it is going to be a key factor. And again, as I was saying in response to tomorrow's message, it, it does go hand in hand with uh, other issues. I'm, you know, I'm not saying levelling up will solve the war in Ukraine or anything, but, you know, housing is a really key part of levelling up and it was very encouraging to hear Michael Gove on uh, Sunday morning saying that he he just wants to end uh, leasehold uh, contracts for building properties you know ma making it so that you're not paying rent on the ground where your house sits you know it's, it's scandalous it's archaic and he's absolutely right to want to get rid of that uh, and housing is just a key part in really getting us into a better situation economically to uh, to re really improve the the economic outlook at the moment because you know we see that the high high housing costs mean that so much becomes inaccessible to people you know if, if you're forced to live uh, further away from a, a city center where you might work it means your commute time is longer your journey's longer it it's more expensive and you you, you end up feeling detached from the area where you, you live. And there's a, a great article, I've referenced it before, The Housing Theory of Everything. If you uh, go online, look it up, it's by an organisation called Works in Progress. It's a fantastic article, I'd highly recommend it. But yeah, on, on your other points, yes, you know those are major issues. Strikes, cost of living, uh, foreign policy in terms of the Ukraine war. Those are key issues. And But I, I think ultimately... It, it, leveling up will be an overarching factor that does come into it when the next election does happen and especially in response to the earlier message as well about uh, that George was saying about you know the Labour Party embracing the terminology of leveling up so you know thank you for that message Sam our next message comes from Callum who says it's incredibly disheartening to see Rishi Sunak pledging to put billions of pounds into levelling up when there are so many areas of government that really need that money too. And today, he's pledging 2.1 billion apparently for, as part of this levelling up agenda, but only half of the 80 successful bids in England are in the most 100 deprived parts of the country. At the same time, the NHS needs more money, teachers need higher salaries, energy bills are too high. It's incredible how one moment the government has no more money and the next they have billions of pounds to put into a policy that most people don't care about and nearly £200 million of that levelling up money is going into the southwest as well. Make it make sense, please. Well, thank you for that message, Callum. And uh, what, what, one of the key parts of levelling up is that it's not just about the north of England. You know, it's about addressing inequalities right across the country. And, you know, the, the southwest has some incredibly poor parts as well, ju just as uh, London and the southeast have incredibly poor parts. All areas of the country need additional investment for certain projects or certain schemes, uh, uh, new facilities, new structures, etc. So, you know, the, the money that's being distributed, it, it is necessary. It is going to projects that 
will help me, me, so many people. A lot of the leveling up bids are going into improving public transport networks. They're going into replacing buses, uh, re modernizing train services, thing, things like that, things that do make a difference. And of course, there are some, uh, some sort of vanity projects as well within there, like renovations of town halls as well, you know, to, to restore them to their former glory kind of thing or make them into more usable office spaces. So there's clearly a need for that money. But you're, you're right, there are areas that need the money as well. I'm, I, I have my disagreements about the NHS. I'm not convinced it needs more money. I think it just needs better management, but that's an issue for another day. Again, teachers, they, they do need higher salaries. I don't agree with them going on strike. I don't agree with the amount that the union barons are demanding for uh, their strike demands. But nonetheless, higher salaries are necessary, as they are in a number of other sectors. But again, that should be comparable to the private sector. Again, strikes are an issue for another day. Yes, energy bills are too high. And if, if they'd uh, stuck with Liz Truss, I'm sure her energy price guarantee, the single largest state intervention in the economy since the 2008 financial crisis, would have been a tremendous success and really brought those uh, energy bills down significantly. But there we go. Um, it, yes, the, the government does say it has no more money for many projects. Undoubtedly, it has got the money because it financed uh, lockdown that was costing best parts of a billion pounds a day. So yeah, thank you for that message, Callum. And you're right, the money the money is needed. It is definitely needed in certain areas. But as for how much of it is, that that's up for debate and certainly one to scrutinize when the financial ledgers are published. But thank you for that message, Callum. Now we're going to move away from looking at leveling up and the Convention of the North because on Sunday morning it was announced that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had sacked Conservative Party Chairman Nadim Zahawi. This comes after a dispute over Zahawi's tax affairs when he was appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer in the dying days of Boris Johnson's government. According to Stephen Swinford, the political editor of The Times, an investigation into Zahawi by Sir Laurie Magnus, the Prime Minister's ethics advisor, found that the former minister had committed seven breaches of the ministerial code, which forced Sunak's hand into firing him. According to the report into Zahawi's conduct, his Majesty's Revenue and Customs opened an investigation into his tax affairs in April 2021, when he was serving as the COVID-19 Vaccines Minister, and was even interviewed by HMRC two months later. But he never informed the government that he was under investigation. Upon promotion to Education Secretary in October 2021, Zahawi failed once again to declare that he was under investigation. In July 2022, when he was appointed Chancellor, he failed again to disclose his ongoing investigation. As if this evidence in Sir Laurie's ethics report wasn't bad enough, the next part of the story gets even worse. Because about a week after Nadim Zahawi became Chancellor, news reports of an HMRC investigation began to surface. However, the then-Chancellor issued a statement calling those news reports, quote, inaccurate, unfair and clearly smears. Zahawi still hadn't disclosed his investigation at this point, and the ethics reports revealed on Sunday calls Zahawi's defence on this, quote, an untrue public statement. Following this, Zahawi instructed lawyers to send letters to journalists and other lawyers looking into his potential tax investigation, demanding that they stop looking into him or risk being sued. In August 2022, Zahawi paid HMRC an undisclosed amount as a penalty for not paying the right amount of tax on selling his shares in polling agency YouGov, the business he started before becoming an MP. The sum paid to HMRC is reportedly £4.7 million, 
but according to this bombshell report, Zahawi still did not reveal he was under investigation at this point, nor did he when Liz Truss became Prime Minister and moved him to run the Cabinet Office, the department he was supposed to refer himself to. Even in October, when Rishi Sunak came in and he was moved to Conservative campaign headquarters, Zahawi still had not disclosed his investigation. It was only on the 16th of January, over 18 months after HMRC's inquiry opened, that he disclosed the investigation to the government. Well, speaking on behalf of the government on Sunday morning, this is what Michael Gove said about Zahawi's dismissal. When uh, facts emerged about the position in which Nadim found himself, the Prime Minister said uh, we need an independent investigation. Uh, Sir Laurie Magnus, who as you pointed out is the independent advisor on uh, ministerial standards, on ethics, uh, was asked to look uh, rapidly at the situation. Uh, he concluded his report, he wrote to the Prime Minister I think early today, mm -hmm. um, and then the Prime Minister uh, immediately upon receipt of the letter decided that Nadim could no longer stay in the Cabinet. Nadim Zahawi has had one of the strangest rises and falls of a politician in recent years. The Iraqi-born refugee became the MP for Stratford-upon-Avon in 2010 and was on the backbenches until 2018 when Theresa May made him a parliamentary undersecretary of state, the lowest rung on the ladder. From 2018 to 2021, he remained at that level but was moved across three different departments, most famously overseeing the COVID-19 vaccine rollout when at the Department of Health and Social Care. Following that role, he shot straight up to cabinet level as education secretary, and 10 months later became chancellor of the Exchequer, the second most powerful man in the government. Liz Truss moved him down a level to run the cabinet office, then Sunak moved him down even further as party chairman before Sunday's unceremonious return to the backbenches. Zahawi does not seem to be a good person, and his relationship with the truth appears vague at best. As Vaccines Minister, Zahawi promised, in writing and verbally, that vaccine passports would never be introduced. Yet, just weeks after making that promise, vaccine passports were introduced for some sectors and demographics, as well as for international travel. Speaking from my own dealings with him as party chairman, he did not respect the office he held or the party membership. Just before Christmas, I attended a black tie dinner where he was the guest speaker. Whilst everyone in attendance was in bow ties and tuxedos, he arrived wearing a grey suit and a teal tie. He reluctantly went to a few tables to speak with attendees and gave one of the most uninspiring speeches I have ever heard from a minister. The speech was best summed up by one attendee who said Zahawi could put a glass eye to sleep. Nadine Zahawi is a cautionary tale of what happens when you are dishonest, try to shut down a free, free press and free expression, and you get caught. He is no loss to politics, and I look forward to seeing what his successor as party chairman will do differently. Goodbye and good riddance. Let me know what you think. All of our contact details can be found on our website, wizardradio.com. We'll be back just after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, 
Welcome back to the show. We are still discussing Nadim Zahawi's sacking as Conservative Party chairman. Please do continue to vote in our poll as well. Question of the day is, is levelling up still relevant? To vote, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. Let's go back to your messages now. And our first message on this topic comes from Andrew, who says, if Nadim Zahawi was not a politician, let's say he was a teacher or a lawyer or a policeman, the sort of job where you'd have to have background checks done on you, and he had not declared that he was under investigation for something similarly relevant to those jobs, he wouldn't have just been sacked. He would, have, he would have been banned from being able to be a teacher or a lawyer or a policeman ever again. What does it for me is the fact that it wasn't just, he didn't just uh, not disclose that he was under investigation once or twice. It happened time and time again. And then he did everything in his power to try and intimidate people to stop investigating him. He shouldn't just be sacked, Nathan. He should be banned from ever holding a ministerial position ever again. Well, thank you for that message, Andrew. And I completely agree with you. It's, it's absolutely scandalous that Nadim Zahawi was ever, ever allowed to climb to the second most powerful position in government, potentially even in the country. And, to, and yet he had this tax affair go, going on constantly. And it's not like the cabinet office didn't know about this because it has been reported that when Boris Johnson's government was in ter terminal collapse and he was trying to just fill gaps wherever he could, when he did uh, propose Zahawi for the position of Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Cabinet Office Propriety and Ethics team was asked to do a, a brief background check, you know, just to do the due diligence before handing someone the keys to the Treasury. And it, it, they then raised concerns about uh, Zahawi's tax affairs. It, it, the, he hadn't disclosed the investigation, but the, there were still reports internally that he was being investigated for uh, non-payment of tax. So, and yet the, that advice was merely advice and was swiftly ignored. So it, it's not just the fact that Zahawi shouldn't have been able to rise as high as he did. And uh, it's absolutely right that he's been so unceremoniously dropped back to the back benches. But it also highlights an issue within government, within the hiring process for ministers and proves that the patronage of the prime minister does reign supreme. And at some point that will need to be reviewed, particularly in light of this. And I'm sure the Prime Minister's new ethics advisor will be uh, monitoring that very, very closely. But thank you for that message, Andrew. And our next message comes from Georgie, who says, this is all Boris's fault. Things were not like this before he was Prime Minister. He set a new example. I'm studying politics A-level and I've been learning about how David Cameron stepped down after the Brexit referendum because he didn't believe in Brexit, so he left. Prime Ministers and Presidents in America used, used to optionally step down because they were shamed that they'd been revealed as having a scandal, and the scandals they used to have to step down for were minor. It was for having an affair or lying. Now you have politicians committing full-on fraud or not paying taxes when they set the tax rules, and they refuse to step down. This is a very slippery slope we are on now. The fact is, this Nadeem Zahawi debacle doesn't even shock us. It was right that Nadine was sacked, but the rest of them need to go too. Well, thank you for that message, Georgie. And yes, there there is certainly a, a case to be made that this is Boris Johnson's fault. Standards did certainly slip under the uh, Johnson ministry. Uh, but if fundamentally, you know, we, we do still have to remember the uh, principle of innocence until proven guilty. Now, I know 
that that's not completely cut and dried within this case. But and you know, Sahawi should have uh, made no, made it very clear that he was under investigation. But not nonetheless, it was an investigation. There hadn't been any ruling until that point, so he shouldn't have had to step down until the point at which he was forced to pay the penalty. And he sh- absolutely should have disclosed that. But again, on uh, other leaders stepping down, again, David Cameron had to. He'd boxed himself into a corner with back in, being the face of the Remain campaign. Leave one, his position was untenable. Again, U.S. presidents, you're, you're quite right. You usually uh, do not contest the next election if uh, if they've been involved in a major scandal. Of course, the only U.S. president who resigned the office was Richard Nixon following Watergate in the 1960s. And again, it proves that standards in public office are hugely, hugely important. And you're right, th- this debacle does set a, a a very dangerous precedent if ministers are allowed to just carry on unchecked or uh, not have regular deep background checks it's it's a, it's not enough just to have a unit of the cabinet office doing a, a quick bit of due diligence before a hasty appointment to running the nation's finances you know there does need to be deep background checks regularly and constantly on anyone who is a minister of the crown but thank you for that message georgie and i'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week but before we go let's check in with the final poll result a reminder that our question of the day is is leveling up still relevant well, only 38% of you say yes, it is, but 62% of you say no, leveling up is not. Well, thank you to everyone who's listened to this week's episode, and thanks again to everyone who sent in messages live. If your message wasn't read out this week, then please do try again next week. I'm Nathan Eckersley, and I'll be back at the same time, same place, next week. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.